Daniel chapter 8, which I have called the ram and the goat, is the second of these six chapters in the book of Daniel, which form a broad outline, and in some cases very specific, of Old Testament prophecy, and without which we cannot fully understand the book of Revelation. For constantly these six chapters that conclude the book of Daniel mesh with Revelation and explain uh, much of it. Now this vision, this, this vision, the dream and its interpretation, Daniel dates in uh, 538 B.C., the third year of Belshazzar, which was also the last year and would have been very shortly before the Babylonian Empire collapsed and was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Now Daniel was a man who, except for the Apostle John, received more direct and detailed revelation of things impossible to know without that revelation than any other man in the Bible. And we may wonder why it was that Daniel was singled out. Moses uh, prophesied in his writings. Uh, Jacob on his deathbed prophesied the course of his 12 sons testifying to their character and the results of their tribe's lives throughout the centuries. But no one exceeds Daniel. And I think woven throughout this book, we find a key to it. Daniel, perhaps beyond anybody in Scripture that we read about where we are told about it, Daniel was a man of prayer. We are told uh, previously in chapter 6 that when Daniel knew that a decree had been signed that his life would be forfeit if he prayed where they could tell he was praying rather than uh, pray in a different place or pray standing up or pray with his mouth closed and his eyes open. Daniel went and did what he did three times every day, blocking out the time to spend time with God. And I believe that it was during one of his daily times of prayer when he was in an attitude of communion with God at Babylon that Daniel is transported in his vision to the city Susa or Shushan depending on which translation you're reading from which at this time was a minor provincial capital in the Babylonian empire Yet Daniel is transported there. The city and the river Uli are identified because within the next generation, after the ascendancy of Medo-Persia, several kings, including Ahasuerus, the husband of Esther, would reign the known world from the city of Susa. And so supernaturally, Daniel is transported to this city with which he was familiar in his government work and the vision occurred there for there was to be the seat of power of the empire that was to displace Babylon. Now in this vision, he is given a look at the rise and fall of the second and third great world empires, the Persian Empire, and Greece. In verses 1 to 12, here the vision is seen. I think we need to read this. Why don't you follow? 
In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal, or river. Then I lifted up my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast were able, uh, no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he came up to the ram that had the two horns and rushed at him in wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered the two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven." And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the palace of his sanctuary was thrown down." And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. This vision is the vision of three things. It is the vision of Persia, Medo-Persia, the longer of the two horns being the Persian part of the Medes and the Persians, which was dominant before the empire came to an end. It is a vision of the conquest and the division of, the Alexander, of Alexander the Great's empire following his death. And it is a vision of two men, one in verses 9 to 12. Primarily, it is about a man who was an offshoot, a descendant of one of the uh, generals who took the four a fourth part of Alexander's empire, and a slight glimpse at the Antichrist at the end of time. Alexander the Great here is the fierce he-goat who stomps and destroys. He is seen as a swift and invincible foe who destroys everything in his path and destroys the previously invincible ram. Now... Medo-Persia, as I said, is the ram. They had taken over from Babylon, and then they had consolidated their power and spread their empire to control the world as they knew it at that time. 
Now later in this chapter, even though it was far in advance, especially the rise of Greece, later in this chapter, the names of the empires are given to Daniel, so we don't have to wonder what they are, down in verse 20. Now Alexander the Great, and I think most of you are familiar with his career, was really Alexander or uh, Alexander the Third, who came, or Philip the Third of Macedon, who took the name Alexander the Great for himself. Now, Greece was a group of warring, warlike, independent city-states that had no interest in national unity. In fact, through the golden age of Greece culminating with Alexander, the, the glory of Greece was the glory of her cities, Sparta and Athens and the others. And Greece, though it made a logical, geographical entity, though they were bound by a common heritage and an ethnic relationship, had no interest in unity. But then, begun by his father Philip II, Alexander the Great, quickly following his father's death, which he took over as the, the uh, emperor of Macedonia in, at the age of 18, he quickly consolidated Greece, and then he did what nobody would believe could have happened unless it had have happened. In 12 years' time, Alexander the Great conquered the entire world and never lost so much as one battle on the land or on the sea. Now, Alexander was a glorious man. There's never been one like him in politics, in government. And yet we can see, because the gospels say in the fullness of time, Christ came. We can see how Alexander the Great <laughs> was simply a tool in the hand of God Almighty. For it was Rome that won the war. But it was Greece, Grecian culture, and the Greek language that dominated the earth. Under Alexander the Great, he made the world bilingual. Everyone spoke Greek, basically. He educated the world and pooled the best minds from the world to improve the world. And he was used of God to bring a universal culture and a universal language to the world in preparation for the ministry and death of Jesus Christ and for the spread of the gospel around the known world very quickly. Rome was not equipped culturally to do what Greece did. And yet Rome demonstrated an ability for several hundred years to maintain order and to unite the world politically, such as Greece had not been able to do except for the brief time following the conquests of Alexander the Great. Now we read in here that when his time had come, it says, as soon as the goat became mighty, he was cut down. He magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the Lord, the large horn, the, the one in the middle of his head, the, this ram, goat rather, 
was broken. Now that parallels exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. The horn was broken, four came up in its place, and we'll consider that under the explanation of the vision later. When his time was passed, when he had done his job, God took him, for in addition to being a great man, he was also exceedingly evil. Now, the fourth horn in verses 9 to 12 finds a dual fulfillment that we'll talk about in more detail in verses 15 to 27. The fourth horn finds its fulfillment both in a dictator, a mad, insane king named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes who was a Seleucid, a relative of the Ptolemies who took over Egypt and that part of the world. And it finds a further fulfillment in the ultimate foe of God, the Antichrist, who shall come at the end of time. Now in verses 13 and 14, these are set apart and they give a detail of the vision concerning Antiochus Epiphanes. Here is the length of horror. Daniel writes, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host, or the people of God, to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now this specifically refers to the fact that when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the first of the world rulers in the mold of Hitler and the others who were anti-Jewish, when Antiochus Epiphanes consolidated his power, he wanted to make his fortune by selling every Jew in existence into slavery and by confiscating all of their lands and all of their treasures. And it is a fact that he killed the high priest and the priests of the temple, that he set up pagan worship in the temple, and that in the Holy of Holies he offered a pig on the altar, which was, of course, an abomination to the Jewish people. Now, the 2,300 days means exactly what it says, literally as it is in the New American Standard, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And that was the period of time between the time Antiochus desecrated the temple and then following a continuing revolt by a family, led, a Jewish revolt led by the Maccabees who were of the priestly tribe of the Jews until they recaptured and cleansed and rededicated the place of sacrifice. And then in verses 15 to 21, here is the significance of the vision. And it came about when I had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli River, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. 
Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. Now, that's a key point. The final period of the indignation. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. All right. Now, the vision has a dual significance, as he points out here. It was fulfilled in fact. The part about the little horn and the persecution of the Jews, it was fulfilled in fact by Antiochus Epiphanes historically. It pertains by way of a type, a symbol, a portrait showing us what it is going to be like to the end of time when the Antichrist comes. Now Daniel sought earnestly for the meaning of the vision and was told that it was not for his time but for times yet future. Now there are differences between the little horns in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now if you observe chapter 7 with us, there is found the little horn for the first time who rose from among the ten horns of the fourth world empire, Rome, and immediately conquered three of them and later consolidated his power over all of them. Now you see here's the dual application. In chapter 7, the little horn, the Antichrist himself, rises out of the fourth world empire, Rome. Here, this little horn rises out of the third world empire, Greece. So we can see that there are differences between them. Greece, having been united, maintained power for only a short time. Now there's something of significance here because this marks a turning point in the history of the world. We're told way back in verse 5 that this goat came swiftly from the west toward the east, conquering the world without touching the ground. Now previously we had a vision of Greece as a leopard with four wings, not two, but four wings on his back, and that too signified the swiftness of the conquests of Alexander. Now this goat comes from the west. That is significant because the cradle of civilization was the east, the eastern part of the known world. Every great civilization and all of the great world empires rose from the east until this one. And then Alexander from the west. You see, the west had always been kicked around. Greece and the nations west of her, Europe, had always been pawns in power struggles. They had been slaves. They had been conquered. And now the west begins to get even. And we read up in the vision that the goat was enraged. He was furious at the ram. You see the West beginning to settle the score, and this rivalry between East and West is not a modern phenomenon. It has existed since the very earliest days of human history. 
Now this was a turning point in world history because beginning with Greece followed by Rome and in all of the great world powers since that time that have consolidated great power, they have come from the West. And it shall be so until the very end of time when the kings of the East sweep across Russia and the Middle East just prior to the very end of all things. Rome continued this trend and it has dominated up until this day. Now in verses 22 through 27, this talks about a king with borrowed power and it is a further explanation to Daniel about the meaning of the little horn which arose from the four horns uh, that had sprung up on the head of the goat when the uh, big horn was broken off. I wish I could draw all this. Now, this is, in fact, Antiochus Epiphanes. God never does anything by accident. And it is true in much of prophecy that prophecy that the prophets of the Old Testament gave had a fulfillment in their time or shortly thereafter. But much of that prophecy also had an application to the end of time. And this is one of those. I believe the reason this was chosen... Now, remember this. Antiochus Epiphanes did what he did in, from about 175 to 163 uh, B.C. Daniel saw this vision in 538 B.C., hundreds of years prior to that time. Now, I believe that the, the Lord chose Antiochus Epiphanes and blended him in with the Antichrist because of the similarities. In fact, in searching history, I don't believe there's anybody in the history of the world, not even Adolf Hitler, who is more nearly what the Antichrist will be than Antiochus Epiphanes. He was wicked beyond all belief. He, I, I, could, I could spend a couple of hours just telling you some of the things he did, and it, it's difficult to believe. It's the, what, the, what was done to the Jews in German concentration camps is nothing compared to what Antiochus thought up for them. He was an extremely wicked man, and more than any man who has lived is a likeness of what the Antichrist shall be. He was the ultimate, insane, ruthless, mad dictator. After his death, after the, let me back up, after the death of Alexander, and after 20 years of power struggles, now, in explaining the vision, <coughs> we'll talk about these four horns for a moment. After the death of Alexander and 20 years of power struggles, it is a fact, just as is prophesied in this vision, that four of the generals of Alexander's army arrived at a peace treaty whereby they divided his empire into four pieces, and each one of them became an emperor in his own right. A general named Cassander 
took Macedonia and the western part of Alexander's empire. That was the home of Alexander. That's where Cassander was king. A general named Lysimachus took Thrace and the northern part of Greece and the empire. A general named Seleucus, Seleucus, who became the founder of the Seleucid Empire and a relative of Ptolemy, I believe, took Syria and the eastern part of the empire. And a general named Ptolemy became the first of a new line of pharaohs as he took Egypt and the southern part of the empire. So that is the meaning of the four horns. Beginning with verse 23 or 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. You see, after 20 years of power struggles and trying to get it all together, the empire was falling apart. And the only hope it had to preserve its identity or any identity was that the power be divided and the empires be smaller because none of them could match Alexander for the power of administration and the ability to govern that he had. And in the latter part of their rule, now this is the part that identifies when Antiochus Epiphanes or when the little horn will persecute the Jews. In the latter part of their rule, those four kingdoms, before Rome absorbs them, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, here is Antiochus Epiphanes, this man like the Antichrist, more than anyone else uh, typifies what the Antichrist shall be. Now, these four empires, Macedonia, Thrace, Syria, and Egypt, were all absorbed by Rome. That happened. It says here that when they have run their course, when they're about all out of gas, that this other will happen. The last empire to lose its identity was the empire of Egypt when Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated in war and committed suicide in 30 B.C. and Rome totally absorbed Egypt and the southern part of the Grecian Empire at that point. Antiochus was a descendant of Seleucus. 
But by his day, his empire had greatly shrunk already. Much of it had been absorbed by Rome, and Antiochus IV, his father Antiochus III, had been a great man and a great king and had done a good job maintaining power. But the empire began to crumble under Antiochus IV. It had been greatly absorbed by Rome, and actually he ruled only by the good graces of Rome. He was a puppet king. That's what it means when it says that he will be a king with borrowed power. Like the Antichrist, who at the end of time shall derive his power from the ten-nation confederacy, which forms, which forms the revived Roman Empire. Rome several times stepped in to stop the insane actions of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Several times they stepped in. And by the way, even his name in Greek means, Epiphanes means the God made flesh, the God manifest in flesh. So he is a good type of the Antichrist. He chose the name Epiphanes for himself, and it surely foreshadows what the Antichrist shall do. But now remember the character of Rome. If the things that Antiochus did had happened under Babylon or Persia or even under Alexander, Alexander or the other emperors would have put a stop to it. But all Rome cared about was money. That's the bottom line. All Rome cared about was money, and they cared about maintaining the perimeters of the empire. They didn't care who did what as long as they got their cut. And so though they stepped in sometimes when he got totally out of line, they allowed him to continue to reign. Now, as with the Antichrist, his power was borrowed and it was temporary. He was able to do things that are, are hard to believe that anybody went along with. But while he was venting his hatred for the Jews, and see, the thing with him was money too. He looked around his empire and he decided that he could make money on human flesh. He could make money by enslaving an ethnic group and he decided the easiest one to tackle would be the Jews. And boy, was he wrong because they resisted him and finally God put an end to him. Now notice in verse 25 that he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. For the years of his reign, the revolt led by the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus and his sons, was unsuccessful. They, he was not able to conquer them, but they were not able to drive him out from their land and recapture Jerusalem. And in the height of his power in 163 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, with the greatest army he had ever put together, was marching on Jerusalem, who had no defenses. He was going to destroy Jerusalem, raise it to the ground, tear down every stone that stood on top of another, and leave it as a rubble, as a memorial to those who would rebel against him. 
And it is proven, it is documented history that as he approached Jerusalem, he was struck down in a supernatural way. His body was eaten by parasites and he died on the spot. He was broken without human agency. Now we are told in verse 27 that this, this vision took its toll on Daniel. He said he was exhausted and sick for days, but then he got up and carried on the king's business. Now Daniel was made ill by what he saw in the future. Not only the doom of this wicked king, but the fact that many innocents and many of his own people would be destroyed. But after that, he got up and he began to fulfill his responsibilities. He didn't sit and wait for something to happen, and neither must we. It is great to love prophecy, but what this ought to do rather than intrigue us is make us sick, rob us of sleep as we realize the fate of the lost. Perhaps if we could become people of prayer, as was Daniel, then we could begin to share his burden, and then we would begin to share the gospel. May we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that you've revealed to us everything that you want us to know, that you have validated times without number through the history of our world, your omnipotent power and your ability to control everything ultimately. Now, Father, there's a place we're to play and we can stand in awe and, and, and be amazed at prophecy and the total accuracy of it. And looking at what it says about the past, we can know that what it says about the future is true. But Father, I pray that in the meantime, we won't sit and look up and wait for something to happen. That like Daniel, we will put aside our own troubles and become involved in solving the ills of the world through the gospel. Do with us as you please. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to sing hymn 361. Wherever he leads, I'll go. What God would have you do during this time of commitment, do it now. Do it quickly.